0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians once more, but this time not for our regular study of the book of Colossians, but to expose one of the hidden figures who we find there. Now, we're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 7 and 8, and we're going to be paging back and forth between that chapter and chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 because it's right at the beginning and right at the end that this hidden figure appears. So as you know this evening we continue with our series Hidden Figures. These are men and women in the Bible who were likely to overlook maybe because there's not a lot of biblical evidence that is given towards them, but who nonetheless are in the Bible. We need to do something with these characters and they were nonetheless used by God for his purposes. And tonight we're going to be looking at the New Testament character Epaphras. Epaphras. We find him hidden away in the pages of the New Testament in three places, once in Philemon and twice in the book of Colossians. In Philemon, Paul writes at the end of the book, you don't have to turn there, Paul writes in verse 23 of Philemon, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. That's all we learn about Epaphras from the book of Philemon. That's not much. We learn that Epaphras uh, was a Christian who was imprisoned along with Paul at the time when he wrote to Philemon and that he had some sort of relationship with Philemon. That's all we can really learn from Philemon chapter, uh, Philemon verse 23. But that's true of many of Paul's companions. Uh, Paul had many companions who were with him in prison. So if we want to learn something specific about Epaphras, we're going to have to look at the book of Colossians, where he's mentioned twice. All right. Is the sound making a... Is the sound a bit distracting? Is it coming and going? Can you guys hear me at the back? Okay. I suppose that's what counts. Great. So we're going to be looking at Epaphras in the book of Colossians in chapter 1 and chapter 4, and we're going to learn who he was, get a bit of a basic character sketch about who this hidden figure was, And we're going to learn, well, we're going to see what we can learn from his life. See what we can learn from the example of Epaphras. So first of all, who is Epaphras? Now, there's actually quite a lot that we find in the four verses in Colossians that tell us about Epaphras. But the first thing we should really say about Epaphras is who he isn't. Epaphras isn't Epaphroditus. Okay. You may have wondered uh, when, we were, when we were learning about Epaphras tonight, whether that was the same character as Epaphroditus. The name sounds very similar. Our brother Harshad Singh, when he preached on the book of Philippians, he taught us about Epaphroditus. And the names are actually closely related to each other. Epaphras is a shortened form of Epaphroditus. It's like saying Steve and Stephen or Doug and Douglas or or something like that. But they're not the same characters. There's not actually really enough biblical evidence to suggest that they are the same people. What we do know is that Epaphroditus was a Philippian and that Epaphras was a Colossian. So that's the first positive thing that we can say about Epaphras, that he was a Colossian. That's what we learn in chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you? Just pause there. He mentions Epaphras, and he mentions that he's one of them. He's a native. He's from the city of Colossae. He was born and raised there. He speaks the same way as people from Colossae. He's not some unfamiliar theologian who descended from the ivory towers of academia to condescendingly preach this gospel. He's a simple gospel believer in Colossae, who heard the gospel most likely in Ephesus when Paul was ministering there and then came back to Colossae and taught others that very same gospel out of his own conviction. He had been won over by the love of Christ, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and had decided to share this good news with his friends, his family, his peers and his colleagues back home. And so he served. That's the next thing that we can learn about Epaphras, that he was a servant of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, quickly flip back again, let's see what we read about Epaphras. It says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister. So we have two words that are closely related to each other. He's a fellow servant and a faithful minister. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, I know, lots of paging back and forth. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. So three words that are related to each other. Not the exact same word, but closely related. He's a fellow servant. That means he served alongside Paul. Paul saw him as an equal. He was a co-laborer with Paul. And then later on in 1 verse 7, he's a minister. That's the word for deacon. It's diakonos. It doesn't mean he was necessarily fulfilling the formal office of deacon in the church of Colossae. But it means he served people's needs. And he served faithfully. And then in chapter 4 verse 12, he says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. So yes, Paul was sorry. Epaphras was serving with Paul. Yes, he was serving on behalf of the Colossians. But at the end of the day... The person he was really serving was Christ Jesus. At the end of the day, he was a servant of Christ. That's what Epaphras was all about. So he was a servant, fulfilling the ministry of a servant. And what ministry in particular was he fulfilling? Well, that's the last thing we learn about him. We learn that he was a teacher of some sort, a gospel teacher. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 7 again. Paul says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Now, what did they learn from Epaphras? Let's take a look at the context. Let's go to verse 5. And Paul says that we give thanks because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, As indeed in the whole world, it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned the gospel from Epaphras. So what did the Colossians learn from Epaphras? They learned about the gospel. They learned about the word of truth. They learned about the grace of God with conviction. So throughout this section, these first opening verses that that Ed read for us, we we see that Paul is is giving thanks to God for the fruits of the gospel in the lives of the Colossians. That's what Paul is doing. He's giving thanks to God. And then in verse 7, he expresses his gratitude for the fact that the gospel he is grateful for, the gospel that he's about to outline throughout the rest of his book, is the exact same gospel that they first heard when Epaphras taught it to them. So Paul isn't trying to one-up Epaphras. He's not trying to outdo him or outshine him. He's not trying to gainsay him. He's not bringing a separate gospel. He's saying the gospel that I'm preaching to you, the gospel that Epaphras taught you, is the exact same gospel. If anything, rather than gainsaying Epaphras, it's like what Paul is doing is he's pulling him out from the side of the stage, from the wings, and he's saying, remember the gospel that he taught you? Remember that gospel? That's the same gospel I'm grateful for in your lives. Remember when Epaphras taught you about this Jesus of Nazareth who came born of a virgin and lived a perfect life? Remember that gospel? Remember that same Jesus who, although he lived a sinless, perfect life, was crucified under the hands of Pontius Pilate and the Jews for our sin? Do you remember how Epaphras taught you that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became a servant. Remember that gospel that Epaphras told you, that although he died, he rose from the grave, inaugurating his kingdom and securing our righteousness before the Father. Remember that gospel that Epaphras taught you? I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful that you guys listened to this dear, faithful minister, Epaphras. That's what Paul is saying here. The word for learned there in chapter 1, verse 7 means to introduce someone to something. And it's related to our word for disciple. It essentially means essentially, to make someone a disciple of Jesus. The Colossians had been introduced to the gospel by Epaphras. They were discipled by him and taught by him. He had those first awkward evangelistic conversations with them when he introduced them to Jesus. And now, being separated from them for some time, as we learn from 4 verse 12, Epaphras isn't there right now. Nonetheless, he desires, striving in his prayer, that the Colossians mature and that they become fully assured of what he taught them. So he didn't just have some youth rally and then get on a helicopter and go out of Colossae. He's still concerned for them and he's praying for them and he wants them to mature in Christ. Epaphras has the real heart of a gospel teacher, someone who's actually concerned to see gospel growth in the Colossians. Now, that's Epaphras in a nutshell. As you can see from just a handful of verses, there's quite a lot we can say about this hidden figure. But we want to now draw out some implications about this. Why is Epaphras even mentioned? Why does Paul mention Epaphras? Epaphras. What does he hope to achieve in the Colossian church, and what are we supposed to learn from Epaphras' example? That's what we're going to be delving into now. By mentioning Epaphras, Paul hoped to grow in the Colossians a gratitude for this hidden figure. He wanted to put him in the light for a moment and reveal him. Paul mentions Epaphras by name because he's someone they know and because he's someone that the Colossians can emulate Someone whose example they can follow. And what does this mean for us? Well, of course, we don't know Epaphras today. We've never met him in person. But we do have enough in God's word for an example to be set for us. So what is the example that's being set for us by the, the hidden figure of Epaphras? Well, first, there is the example of serving Christ. That's the first thing we learn about Epaphras, the example of serving Christ. Christ. We learned that he himself was a servant of Christ Jesus. And so the natural implication is, if Epaphras was a servant of Christ Jesus, what does that say about the way that we serve? We learned that all ministry counts if it is done for Christ. All ministry counts if it's done for Christ at the end of the day. No matter how glamorous or glorious, no matter how menial or mundane the task, if it is done for Christ, it will be used. If it is done for Christ, it won't perish. This is none other than what we've been learning in 1 Corinthians, right? As you walk through the church doors, maybe on a Sunday or a Friday night for some ministry, as you enter someone's house for grace group, as you sit next to someone's sick bed, as you step into a hard conversation with a colleague about the gospel, or maybe a family member, and you decide to counsel someone, ask yourself, what is the goal of the situation? How is this goal or how can this situation be geared towards glorifying Christ? How can he be the one that's leaned on here? How can he be the one who's trusted? How can I, even as a hidden figure, serve Christ, not myself, in this situation? Even so-called Christian ministry can be, can be perverted and turned around to look more like the world. Or to serve our own purposes? Is our purpose in ministry self-centered? Putting ourselves in the spotlight? Well, of course I want to be involved in that ministry because then she'll see me. Or he'll see me. Or, you know, maybe being unwilling to let others speak for us. Wanting to put ourselves forward and unwilling to serve outside the spotlight. Or maybe our purpose in ministering and our purpose in serving is worldly. We may have all the best intentions in the world, but we're employing worldly ways of attracting and helping people rather than relying on God's Word and being empowered by God's Spirit for ministry. Thinking that this ministry will only succeed if, yes, I quote a few Bible verses, but at the end of the day, I rely on this system. Or, yes, if I rely on the strength of the Holy Spirit, but actually we, we do this, and we do this to this ministry. That's not what makes it a Christian ministry. You know, many come into to this church or, or many churches hoping to, to serve one day. They've got big plans for the church, and the church must provide a platform for them to express their personal vision for this community. If I can speak personally for a moment, before I joined this church, BBC, BBC, um, and before I learned about the biblical concept of church membership, I, I played drums in a number of, of music teams um, in Alberton. So, and when I say a number of music teams, I mean on a Friday night, I would play at one church. On Sunday night, I would play at another church. And um, on Sunday morning, I'd play at another church. And so I was kind of everywhere. I didn't have much of a, a concept of, of serving a local body of believers and if anything that can be, be said for myself, I don't really know whether my heart was in the right place when I was serving like that. I wonder whether my service is more for my own purposes. I mean, look, I, I can play drums, so, so let me play here, and these people will see me there, and this church has this great stage with these lights. I want these people to see me. I want her to see me. And that wasn't Sine. <laughs> that was many That was many years ago. <laughs> Now, of course, this says something to my shame about me and my lack of maturity. But this also says something about those churches, that they would allow this kind of non-committal service. This one pastor I met of this new church, he said, Oh, Stephen, we want to chain you to the drums. <laughs> I didn't really know what to make of that. But, <laughs> but, but truth be told, I don't know whether they knew whether I was even a Christian or not. And here they want me ministering on stage, setting an example for the young people in the church. They don't even know me from a bar of soap. For all they knew, I could have been an atheist who just knew a bunch of Christianese and knew how to play the drums. I could serve, so I was put on their roster. And apparently my heart wasn't challenged until years later. So do you see how this kind of service is dangerous and how it misses the mark of ministry? It puts forward as the goal of ministry humans. It's putting forward as the goal of ministry elevating us and our abilities rather than putting Christ at the center. It doesn't matter what sort of paraphernalia we have about our ministry if Christ isn't the center. If we lose him, it's not even ministry. Who are we serving? So these are some signs that we're not serving Christ in our ministry. First, if we get upset, if we can't serve as often as someone else. This is something I personally wrestled with. When I was in the music team at some older churches, I wanted to serve every week. I mean, no one can play drums like I can, you know? Um, or no one can do it as well as I can. This ministry will not thrive without me. That's an ungodly and an unchristlike attitude towards ministry. That ministry is about me. Another sign that a ministry is self centered is if we get frustrated if there's no budget for a ministry opportunity that you feel deeply about. Now, I'm not saying that there's time to go back to the drawing board and say, how can we allocate funds to this ministry? This may be necessary. But in our own hearts, we may, we may have pet ministries that, that we really want to see support for. It's not saying that those intentions are wrong. But if we, if we feel like our motivation to serve is diminished if this one ministry can't run, then we have to ask whether we want to serve Christ or only serve Him in a very specific way. There are millions of ways to serve Christ. So here are some positive signs that we are serving Christ. Firstly, we'll serve where there is a need, not where we think there should be a ministry. Maybe from a church you grew up in or a church you came from, they had a ministry of apologetics or they had a ministry of counseling or a ministry of so-and-so. And And it's, it's easy to come to another church and think, well, all churches have to have this ministry, right? We've got to have a ministry of this. We've got to have a ministry of X, Y, Z. But we've got to be asking ourselves, will I serve where there's a need? That would be a healthy sign that someone is serving for Christ. I love Christ. I want to make Him known. How can I serve Him? Regardless of what formal ministry is in place. Maybe another sign that that our our ministry is Christ-centered is that rather than waiting to be asked to be rostered in, we make ourselves available. We make ourselves available for ministry. The most cherished disposition that I perceive in so many people in this church is just a willingness to help. People just putting their hand on your shoulder and saying, how can I help? How can I help? How can I serve? How can I pray? That is the heart of Christian and Christ-centered ministry. They're not waiting for someone to say, step in line. They're rather saying, we see a need, we're available for that, however we can be used. As you, as you know, I, I head up the children's ministry on Friday night, basic, and, and one of my most cherished leaders, who's now sadly not in, in this church anymore, um, every, every year I'd ask him, you know, where are you hoping to serve? Would you prefer to serve with the juniors or with the seniors? Uh, and he would always just say, wherever I'm needed, Stephen, wherever I'm needed. And he had been in the ministry for years. And wherever there was a gap, he, he stood in that gap. I was, I was really grateful for that. But then a final sign that our ministry is Christ-centered, that we are servants of Christ Jesus and not ourselves, is that we will not depend on formal structures of ministry before serving others. I kind of alluded to this a moment ago. It's easy to think that if we are to serve Christ, it must be in a sort of formal, public way, that there has to be a structure for it. But a lot of ministry that happens in the church is informal, as opposed to formal. A lot of ministry in the church is simply, how can I pray for you? You're new to the church. Um, do you have a Bible? Can I help you read that Bible? Or is there something I can teach you about the church? How can I pray for you? You guys are struggling with something, um, in, uh, some health issue. How can I serve you in that way? That's not a formal ministry. We don't have a ministry of encouragement. We don't have a ministry of prayer. And yet there are countless ways that we can serve like that. So a healthy sign that we want to serve Christ and not ourselves or our own agenda is that we'll serve whether there's a formal ministry or not. So I think that's one implication of this simple phrase about Epaphras, that he was a servant of Christ. He served and was a faithful minister on behalf of the Colossians. Not because he walked around and he had some grand parachurch ministry and he wanted them to sign on and really get behind his ministry. He wanted them to grow in Christ. It was as simple as that. That's the first thing we can learn from Epaphras. But the second thing we can learn from the example of Epaphras is the example of teaching Christ to others. Teaching Christ to others. Let me say this unequivocally. All Christians have the responsibility to teach the gospel to others. Period. Period. All Christians have the responsibility to teach the gospel and share the gospel with others. The great commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 when he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That was not just a command for the 11 apostles. That was a command for the entire church. It was a command for Epaphras. It was a command for Paul. We all have the responsibility to teach the gospel and introduce others to it. What Epaphras did by instructing the Colossians in the gospel is not a super-Christian thing. It's not a Christian elite thing that he did. It's not only for Christians with a degree from university or professionals. It's for everyone who believes the gospel. We're all priests unto God. Now, we don't know exactly how Epaphras came to learn the gospel himself. Um, As I said, it may be that he met Paul while Paul was in Ephesus, and maybe then he came back. But what we do know, what we can safely say, is that when Epaphras came back to his hometown of Colossae, maybe from Ephesus or somewhere else, he was most likely the only Christian in Colossae. Can you imagine that? Coming back home with these new convictions about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and realizing you're the only person here in this entire city, who knows about Jesus. And imagine you thought that it's not your responsibility to teach. Imagine that's what Epaphras thought. If he had gone home believing this great truth about how God saved sinners and how Jesus overcame the grave but never spoke to anyone about it, what would you think? You might think either that he was trying to hide something out of fear or else maybe that he simply didn't believe What he had heard. I think hiding the gospel out of fear is most often our temptation. Many of us, myself included, are very concerned about what others may think of us when we speak about religious things, when we speak about Jesus and the church. This past Thursday evening... I met with some men, and we are discussing Disciplines of a Godly Man, which, men, if you haven't read that book, I would highly recommend that book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. And we were looking at the discipline of friendship on Thursday night. And one of the men in our group asked a good question, a candid question. As our time was wrapping up, you know the way it is. He opened up this kettle of fish. He said, is it wrong to have unbelieving friends? Is it wrong to have unbelieving friends? And we all thought about it. We weighed in. We We thought about maybe some of the pitfalls and the dangers. But we said maybe we can't say categorically that in every case it's it's always wrong and sinful to have Christian friends. But what we did conclude is that it would be wrong to have unbelieving friends but have no desire to see them get saved. Or to have a desire to see them get saved but to not make a move on that. And I appreciate the brother's response. He said that's convicting. and, And as he said that, I realize how convicting it is for me as well. How many of my colleagues might not even know that I'm a Christian? Or they know I'm a Christian, but I've never said anything about it. Or some close friends of mine may not know. We need to be able to step into that awkward, uncertain, uncomfortable space and put some truth out there. It ought not to be seen as an impossible task to say, can I chat to you about something that means very much to me? I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Now, I know... You've probably heard about Jesus, maybe even grew up in a Christian home. I would just like to share with you what I believe about what we call the gospel, about the good news of what God has done for believing sinners in Christ Jesus. Do you know that gospel? That ought not to be a scandalous thing. That ought not to be a thing we're afraid of sharing. It should be something we get the privilege of sharing. So we should follow the example of Epaphras and how he went to a city that didn't know Jesus and explain the gospel to them. <laughs> Finally, the timing was nearly perfect. Uh, the last thing we can learn from Epaphras and from this hidden figures series is we learn something about the hiddenness of Christ. There's a simple phrase that Paul includes which highlights the importance of Epaphras to Paul and the Colossians, yes but also highlights the importance of this Hidden Figures series. In chapter 4, verse 13. In chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says this. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. Just that. For I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you. I testify about him. I can speak on his behalf. I can vouch for this man. He's worked hard for you. I like the the way one commentator put it. I can vouch for him. I can get behind this guy. I say this about him because he wouldn't say it about himself. If we ask the question, why are we considering these hidden figures? And if we're asking the question, why would Paul mention Epaphras? It's because Epaphras was the kind of guy who wouldn't have mentioned himself. He wouldn't have said, look how hard I'm working for you guys. At least we don't have examples in Scripture of him doing so. So much of Epaphras' work was hidden. Yes, hidden from our sight. But there are only a handful of verses that speak about him. So from our perspective, he's a hidden figure. But his work was also partly hidden from the perspective of the Colossians. When Epaphras was not with them, as was the case when Paul wrote Colossians... There was no way they could have known what he was doing and whether he was still concerned for them. And yet he was laboring behind the scenes. He was laboring in the wings or backstage for them, outside the spotlight. Epaphras had been working hard for the Colossians, and Paul mentions this to them because without him vouching for Epaphras and mentioning him by name, they may not have noticed. They may have even been tempted to forget the one who gave them the gospel in the first place. That's why Paul mentions him. But all the while, um, Epaphras is praying, he's teaching, serving, moving in an unassuming manner through the pews from church to church, doing the work of an evangelist, greeting people, visiting the sick, laboring alongside others, and counseling. Maybe his visits to Colossae become less frequent over time. Maybe he spends time with Paul, and maybe he gets imprisoned along with Paul and is counted worthy to suffer persecution for the sake of the name. Maybe he dies, hidden from view. I was reminded of this quote at the end of, of a movie, if you, if you know me, I've spoken about many times, called A Hidden Life, based on a true story of, of an Austrian farmer who, when, when the Germans came around in World War II to recruit soldiers, he quietly resisted. This wasn't a sort of Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise resistance. This was a sort of hidden life resistance. And his inevitable fate is played out throughout the rest of the movie, which ends with this quote. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. How much more can we say that of Christ? After all, this isn't about Epaphras. Yes, we're putting him in the spotlight to consider him tonight, but Epaphras' entire life itself was pointing to Christ. After all, Isaiah says this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Christ in his ministry lived a kind of hidden ministry. He came not to be served, but to serve. He prayed, not my will be done, but yours be done to the extent of dying on the cross for the sins of those who hate him. He was crucified, but God raised him from the dead. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we often forget such a simple truth about your character and your attributes that you know all and you are everywhere present at all times and that you see us even in our hiddenness, even when we don't serve in the spotlight. You are there. And so I pray from Epaphras' example that we would learn to serve you and serve you alone, to serve you by teaching others by ministering to others, by giving our lives for the sake of the gospel. We pray that you would be glorified in this. That's all we desire. We don't desire to be put in the spotlight. We desire to be like Jesus, to give our lives for the sake of the cause. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.